Welcome to the Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast. I'm Joe Patrice. That's Catherine Rubino. We're from Above the Law, which you theoretically are reading. But if you aren't and you're just listening to the podcast, you can also check out our work there. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to note it, to know if there were people who only listened to the podcast, not the... Not the, not, you know, get, get the Reader's Digest version from us here, yeah, not rest yeah. necessarily. Yeah, no, it would be interesting. Anyway, yes, so once again, we are here to talk about some of the big legal stories of the week to keep you informed on uh, the world of above the lawing. So came out of a holiday weekend. But it was, we just left a very big legal week as these things go. That is true. Uh, the holiday weekend came right on the heels of a lot of Supreme Court news. Both, you know, not not necessarily great, as well as the continuing push towards raises and stuff, which we've already talked about. We've got nauseum, but you know, people are excited that they're getting money, and we're here for that. Yeah, no, um, but yeah. How was your holiday weekend, Joe? Before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, sure, Uh, good. You know, so the cataclysmic climate change didn't. Yeah, I mean, it was cold and rainy on. it was yeah. in the 60s on yeah. July 3rd. Yeah. yeah that is not normal. Yeah, that's that's more what should be happening in places like Portland, which were instead 118 degrees. Um, but yeah. No, it's... Uh, Are you ready for like the Mad Max level of climate change that I feel like we're about to enter in on? Yeah, no. I mean, I'm stockpiling... Uh, gasoline and and milk i think right yeah, shotguns yeah no it's gonna be just like mad max <laughs> yeah but you're not really right no okay no 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 no. well it's concerning there are actually people in that's this right country are... that are actually doing those things so right let's yeah. clarify no okay well that's good i'm glad that you're not actually uh a yeah, baby doll prepper. heads and stuff for the the outf- <laughs> elaborate outfit i'll have to do and yeah i mean you're ready for it yeah. i guess Yeah. Well, I mean, it fits my general style now, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's what people think when when they think of me, like that I dress, you know, and that kind of. Yeah. 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 I mean, a bandolero of bullets and uh, baby doll heads. Yeah. That seems right. Look, that's on brand. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I've been preparing for for a long time, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some people haven't prepared for it. Some people there went to law go. school to be a lawyer, not an accountant or, you know, a post-apocalyptic warlord. But <laughs> if you went to law school to be a lawyer and not an accountant, take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IOLTA management tool to help solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Enjoy peace of mind with one-click reconciliation, automated transaction alerts, and real-time bank data. Visit trustnota.com legal to learn more. Terms and conditions may apply. So, yeah. So uh, now that we have this unsettling image of you in a yeah. post-apocalyptic world. Dressed like world. Zardoz, yeah. Yeah. Which isn't the name of the character in that movie. I actually don't know what the name of the character in that movie is. Anyway, point is. Um, now that we have an even deeper yeah. understanding of your brain, it's just <laughs> not, not great for anybody, actually. So speaking of people's brains that aren't great for anybody... There was a voting rights case last Ooh. week, and um, it was... Democracy was a fun experiment while it lasted. It was. Brnovich came down, it was 6-3. Uh, there had been some, as it was delayed and delayed and delayed... Wish, wishful thinking. Wishful thinking had existed that maybe 
Alito, who one by reading tea leaves could have assumed was writing the majority opinion, Mm -hmm. that he had gone so far that he'd managed to lose a majority and there was some scrambling. As it turns out, nope, that's not the case. Not only was there not, did he not lose the majority, he also managed to fend off any kind of watering down concurrences. And there's one concurrence that actually goes the extra mile of, you know, we were kind of thinking maybe we could just get rid of this altogether. But as it is, what happened is, I mean, look, there were a couple of voting provisions questionable whether or not, you know, you could make good faith arguments against them if you wanted to. But that's not really how, you know, that's That's not how this works. That's not how Supreme Court decisions work. It has very little to do with what the actual provision that they struck down was, what we got was Alito drawing up a new five-part test that essentially rewrote the actual statute with no real reference to anything that's actually in the statute. In fact, it was pointed out by, uh, I think Scott Wimu on Twitter, I can't remember who it was from Lawyers, Guns, and Money, but he, uh, he put up a thing somewhere that pointed out that there was a effort in 1982 to write a more restrictive version mm-hmm. of the Voting Rights Act that Roberts was actually very involved in at and the time. And it failed. And it, but it explicitly failed. But what really happened here in this opinion is Roberts, along with Alito, rewrote what actually happened as though that law had passed, even though it yeah. was roundly rejected. I mean, rejected. that's really a moment where the myth of textualism gets oh, yeah, blown no. up, right? Because there was an option for this more restrictive version when the law was passed, but rather than acknowledge that that is not what Congress decided to pass in the 80s, they just went as if it had gone yeah. the way they had advocated for it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think a yeah. lot of us know that there's not really much, you know, principle behind some of these legal theories. I mean, here, back up for a second, right? Because I think that... Backing. (laughs) I think that... Beep, beep, beep. uh, Are you you all... Are you done now? (laughs) Maybe. Beep. (laughs) No, no, but I think that savvy court readers or observers are very aware that textualism and originalism are just words that are given to a very clear political point of view without any sort of rigorous academic underpinnings. But I do think that the terminology, the PR battle that the right wing of legal jurisprudence has engaged in for generations has been very effective. And it makes young folk or people who are not currently enmeshed in the world of, of legal jurisprudence, it often will grab people because it seems like there is some sort of a clear doctrine that you can follow and there's a process involved as opposed to a pure naked politicalism. And I think it's important to constantly point out what it is. Yeah, there, there is none. It is a very, it is a very snappy public relations move. And, you know, and I think, that, I think that's incredibly important to constantly point out and point out when they they make this this sort of counter allegations about the left wing of jurisprudence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I think that's fair. And Justice Kagan wrote a dissent that was very good. Glorious. Was it was a glorious dissent. Just really, um, really, just kind of playing with like, look, I my issues with Justice Kagan a lot of the time mm-hmm. is I feel like she uniquely stands up for some of those empty PR things uh, in an attempt to subvert them. Uh, like she will she will be the one who says, well, you know, if we're, we all, be we're, all, we're all liberal textualists now. Like, yeah. And yeah. it's like, no, you don't try to glom on to those tools as though you're going to use them against them. But whatever. Mm-hmm. But in this instance, it was it was a very good, very textualist response explaining how 
This statute is ridiculously clear about what it intends. There was no question about it, and it is a real breach of any kind of judicial ethics to try and rewrite yeah. the text of the statute like they did. And, and I mean, if, they, if you read Alito's opinion, it is, it's like embarrassingly transparent what's going on. There, there's an effort uh, over a couple of paragraphs where he's like, well, if Random House Dictionary defines this one word out of context as this, and Random House also has this other word out of context this. And then if you put them together as a phrase, but use those definitions, then as what it means to, is... In yeah, context, yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, real bad. I mean, here's here's a, a follow-up question to some things you've said on this podcast before, right? Given the sort of naked politicalism of the Alito's decision... Is and, politicalism a word? I don't know. Maybe it is. I mean, it's clear it, what it means. Now yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah. I guess you've... Uh, now that you've made it a word, I mean, that's kind of Similar to how they made originalism word, I guess. So. Fair. It, yeah. It's, it, it's all, your new judicial philosophy. All words are made up. <laughs> FYI. <laughs> no, but uh, given the sort of um, the reality of the decision and given the court's current composition, it doesn't look like any voting rights protection would be upheld in the way that any Congress would intend it. Given those kind of that kind of background, and your uh, historic opposition to court expansion. Yes. Do you how how do you think, given this decision, how do you think that plays into your opinions on expanding the Supreme Court? I, I still feel um, my issue. I still stand by as bad as things are. Uh, I just feel like the long term solution that we need is not a knee jerk add more people at this point because it does it's you know broken. It's to develop a consistent staggered term limit policy that has every president getting two picks per term. It will not immediately fix things, but it will fix things better over the long term. And that's like, ultimately, the problems with the structure of the court right now are not, there's a bunch of you know, 40-year-old conservatives on it, which is also is, a problem. <laughs> is, a, is a symptom. But the problem is we have a court that rewards pushing zygotes onto the bench so that they can stay for decades and decades mm -hmm. and be a dead hand extension of not what America necessarily is voting is at for. the moment. Yeah. If you if you think that the key to the Supreme Court is that it be, as the founders clearly did, a kind of lagging indicator of American politics, that it's not turning with the with the whims every year, but that it, it reflects what people thought in the past when they voted for a president and Congress in the past and then stuck around, then the way of fixing that is to say, hey, it will be a lagging indicator mm -hmm. by 18 years that you, you know, presidents get two picks. They go, you know, every two years they go on, they get to stay until their run is up at the end of 18 years. And that maintains the don't push children onto the court because 18 years you can have a little bit older a person who can still make it 18 years in a job and you can have a system where it is that good extension of the past but not one that allows a president to basically control dead hand policy for 50 years yeah and i the other part about it is particularly when you look at John Roberts's role in the in the 80s and and his effort to change the Voting Rights mm -hmm. Act and now his role in actually changing the Voting Rights Act. I think that there is 
also an argument for playing the long game. Yeah. And we've seen sort of that play out on the conservative side and and perhaps there's some room for that on the on the left wing to, to play the longer game, which I think is what you're advocating for. Well, you know, it's interesting you, it's interesting you mentioned the longer game because over at Slate, Dahlia Lipwick and Mark Joseph Stern just wrote a piece that there was in the middle of the term, there were some people saying, Oh no, this isn't a six three court, it's a three 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 court and all this kind of attempts to horse race it in ways that didn't really make a lot of sense. But I do think that they they make a great point that there is a 3-3-3 breakdown here. But what that breakdown is about is the three, and sometimes four, because Gorsuch kind of flips between the two of them, but the three conservatives who look around and go, we're going to be here till 2040 or 2050, so we don't need to move very quickly. And the old conservatives who are like, is there a way we can remove the First Amendment tomorrow? <laughs> so, the, well, not all the First Amendment, just parts of the First Amendment that don't allow you to discriminate against you know, gay people. Sure, sure. But that's the distinction is the people who know that they're playing a long game mm-hmm. uh, and are willing to have decisions that kill precedent by a thousand cuts because they know they're going to be there forever. Yeah, I, I think it's a very yeah. interesting distinction. And you can kind of see it when you uh, read those. When you're looking for yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that happened. You know, one of the great before he joined the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. you know, what Justice Breyer was known for being a nationally renowned expert in admin law. Um, hmm. And I'm going to talk about this because maybe maybe you have administrative tasks oh. that you want to streamline. I'm trying here. Um, so you, let's hear you from You definitely our, are trying. Let's hear from our friends uh, from Lexicon, and then we'll chat a little bit about Briar. Here's a message just for the attorneys out there. So you passed the bar, joined a firm, or even built your own. Now are you finding out that you're doing more administration than actual law practice? Lexicon can help. Lexicon is a legal services and technology provider with over a decade of experience streamlining administrative tasks like timekeeping, HR, billing, client intake, and more. So you can focus on maximizing billable hours and increasing client satisfaction. Call 855-4-LEXICON or visit lexiconservices.com go to learn more. Yes. So, uh, before we get started, uh, here's a trivia question for you. Okay. Who was the last Supreme Court justice appointed by a Democrat to retire? Yes. Well, I asked you this question, so I do know the answer. (laughs) That would be Byron Wizard White, who retired in the 90s, having been appointed. Only the, also the only uh, Supreme Court justice to have played professional football. Correct. Correct. (laughs) Yeah. No, and... um, that's, yes, that's, that's a long time ago. It is possible you can retire. It's not It's not a personal failing to retire. Yeah. And unfortunately, that is how some people think of it. It's, it there is a weird quirk to how justices who were actually, in fact, Republicans, but shifted to the left as the years went on, are more responsible about <laughs> keeping the court institutionally protected and moving in kind of a more quasi-bipartisan way than the actual Democrats or Republicans generally have been. Perhaps they understand the notion of bipartisanism in a more profound way. Yeah, because like your suitors and Stevenses are, you know, have done more to kind of contribute to keeping the court as an institution on track than uh, anyone else. It's just really unfortunate. I mean, the thing they really burns me. And I, this is a good transition because you were talking about how originalism is ultimately 
completely empty mm-hmm. philosophy. Empty signifier. But it, you know, it, it it's it's good PR. But at least it's a good PR that they can kind of always concoct a story of how they're really following it because it's that empty signifier. Mm-hmm. Breyer seems to very much in his books and all uh, play to this idea that he's a pragmatist. He's not liberal or anything, just happens to be that he's a pragmatist and that tends to work out this way. But it is equally a empty judicial philosophy. Uh, I mean, he's, it's a basic center-left legal philosophy that he just dresses up in apolitical language because nobody wants to make it sound like they're political on the court. And the proof of why and where he kind of fails compared to the originalists is in trying to find a way to constantly live out that rhetoric. Because if you say you're a pragmatist, and you should retire soon to be 83 refuse to retire. Uh, it really does raise the question how much you really think about the pragmatic effects of stuff, because he's soon to be 83. He seems to be in perfectly fine health and all that. But again, if you don't retire now, the odds that you are able to get replaced before mm-hmm. the midterms, which are likely to be problematic for the White House party, as they usually are, are very low. At that point, it's not even about being replaced by a Democrat. It's being replaced, period, because the Republicans have made explicitly clear in the past that they feel that they can hold the seat open forever if mm-hmm. they have a Senate majority. I mean, they've actually said they've that. They straight up said they would vote against it forever. If that's the case, then you're setting up a situation where if you God forbid something happens and you are unable to continue serving in, mm-hmm. the, you know, longer than a couple months from now, you're going to put the court in a situation where there's going to be eight seats uh, for an extended period of time, which is institutionally bad. It was institutionally bad when it happened for a whole term in the Merrick Garland debacle. Right. How is any pragmatist doing this? And doing this, look, he's not a beautiful and unique snowflake either. Uh, like he, he's, well, that's a, the- he's very good at his job. But you know who else is good at that job? Any one of the number of yeah. elevatable judges who are waiting for an opportunity to Just because on. it's a difficult job doesn't mean that it's impossible to replace you. Yeah. And, and I think that after watching Amy Coney Barrett do disgrace to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat, it would be thrown into particularly sharp relief, but it that is inaccurate. That's yeah. not what happened. And it, it, it takes a special kind of self-importance and narcissism to continue. And I don't think yeah. it's it's just a Democrat thing, as you were saying. I think it's really just it's only the sort of actual bipartisans that recognize this. Because look at uh, I think that conservatives want just wanted Justice uh, Thomas, Thomas yeah. to, oh, absolutely. to resign uh, for the same reasons. Now, I will, I will, in defense of Justice Thomas here, he actually is a unique and beautiful snowflake <laughs> in the level to which his judicial philosophy is not something that would be replaced by a pull-off-the-rack conservative appeals court judge, which... So I can understand how he can justify to himself, I can't retire, because literally nobody thinks the really extreme stuff that I think. So I get that. And to some extent, Alito too. But Thomas, I feel, he feels he has carved out a philosophy that is so unique that no one can replace it. Uh, I don't see, and maybe Breyer has convinced himself he has, but I would like to think that he's cognizant that he hasn't really, and that any number of those DC Circuit judges are 
more than capable of doing that job. Yeah, I mean, and and as much as you may think that about, or, or Thomas may think about his his judicial philosophy, the truth is that in terms of actual voting, which is mm. how the majority of these things get done, right? Because Thomas doesn't write the majority of opinions that he signs yeah, yeah. on to, well, right? Sure. So in terms of actual sort of the math of it, and yeah, there was actually a ton of people that would fill the exact same role. Yeah. Well, so that's, uh, I think that's all our court talk for, for now, right? We've, yeah. we've got a term over. We did not get a retirement. So we've got, you know, a few months to uh, sit around and wait before uh, the horror starts again. Indeed. Well, what do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about people going back to the office? Uh, Speaking yeah. of horrors that will happen again in the fall. Uh, so we have talked a bit about how we're in this sort of crucible moment as far as the future of work, where firms have invested a lot in their tech infrastructure. They know that working from home works. People have made decisions over the last year about how they handle their lives, though where that work flexibility helps. Mm -hmm. We have some law firms who are moving forward with, I need everybody back in the office. We have others who are eyeing three or four day in the office work weeks with uh, the flexibility around that. We did see one firm uh, recently had a, we're going to do three days, but they have to be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which I think is a little weird. I think you're better off allowing flexibility so that not everyone's in the building all at the same time, but whatever. All of this raises the question of like where we're going to end up going, and it is going to take a while to shake out. But we did a survey at Above the Law, if you haven't check it out. Uh, we had a survey which where we asked hundreds of lawyers, what would it take to get you back in an office uh, or get you to feel like going back to the office was the right thing? For instance, if we gave you a 10% raise, would you be cool giving up work flexibility? And the answer Nope. Is no. Uh, <laughs> even though 10% is a large amount of money when people are making a 205 scale, no, 78% uh, said, no, we'd prefer work flexibility over 10% raises. When you moved that to a 20% raise, mm -hmm. the numbers didn't actually change. Wow. Yeah. In fact, slightly more people wanted the work flexibility, uh, but I think that's a rounding error. <laughs> when you get to a 30% raise, now to be clear, for first years, we're now talking about $60,000 a year worth. <laughs> it got closer, but it still was almost a two-to-one margin preferring work flexibility. Which brings us to, if you're a firm right now, and you're trying to go hard on the everybody come back to the office, you are really missing a trick because your associates are willing to take pay cuts to have a firm well, that is willing okay. to I don't do think that. that's accurate. Well, I yes. Do, I do not think there's that reverse causality in those numbers. Okay, not take pay cut uh, to forego pay increases. I mean, I think a couple of things. I think, first of all, that is probably not true given the volatility of the lateral market, right? That mm. there are plenty of firms offering top of the market money as well as flexibility. And what I think this actually signals to firms is not something that's actually is great for associates, because what it means is that there won't be any official policy that folks could learn about ahead of time, make decisions based upon. Instead, there'll be much more informal ways yeah. in which you you subtly force people back into the office. Mm. Uh, I don't I think every firm will say, but of course, you know, if you're needed for a thing, you have to be there. And then all of a sudden they become more and more things that you have to be there for based on, you know, 
what firms are doing, what your practice group area is, but making it not a policy and making it this kind of informal structure, which I think is what these numbers are actually saying to firms, is don't make an official policy. That is flexibility. No policy is flexibility. Mm. And instead, what that means is that there's not a lot of transparency for people either lateraling or new associates entering the big law market. And then that's when the sort of inertia comes in, because once you've already invested the time and money and effort to transfer firms, if you're lateraling or, you know, start out your career to firm, your chances of then moving again or in the first instance are somewhat lower, right? Because there is inertia. You're already there. It's easier to stay where you are, even if it means slowly you have to increase the number of days in which you are functionally, if not by policy, mandated to be in the office. Yeah. I I mean, I don't know. I feel one thing that I'm seeing in the lateral market is a rise in people who are now considering, because of technology, considering lateraling in a way that flattens the world a little bit more. For instance, what I'm saying is there are people who work in, say, Nashville, transactional lawyers in Nashville who are like, you know, I'm going to apply to a New York firm because I can do that work. And if we don't have to go into the office, I'll just do that. And that's going to be the real question for these big firms of how far they want to go with this, because there is talent out there that they theoretically could capture if they were just willing to really go in full force with the work flexibility thing. Because, you know, it doesn't necessarily work with all practice groups, but there are definitely practice groups where somebody, a tax lawyer out there, uh, doesn't necessarily need to be in an office. I mean, in my experience, tax lawyers were the Aren't people. <laughs> I feel like the firms I've worked in with tax lawyers, they were treated as the smartest people in the room, which was probably true. And they also were treated like how sometimes they treat monsters in movies where like a bucket of fish heads is thrown into the room and then it's slammed because uh, they were they just were big brains that you handed a project to. And like three hours later, they walked out and said, here's the answer. But that's the sort of job that I think you could easily do from a remote location. Yeah, I, I, I'm not saying that there's no role for flexibility, but I do worry that without sort of policies in place that this sort of informal flexibility has negative impacts that folks aren't really considering. Yeah. Even if you do get hired as, oh, it's okay, you don't really have to be in the office, maybe you just come in once a month, you know, you could take yeah, some, yeah. whatever. Even if you are hired in that capacity and it seems like everything works out, if you're and, you know, maybe it's different if you're a partner level, but if you're an associate trying to forge that path, you know, what does it look like in two years when, you know, that kind of office culture has returned and your peers are getting the sort of benefit of FaceTime and perhaps getting better assignments because they are there and they, they see, you know, partners see their faces in the office and that kind of informal mentoring that happens in terms of work assignments, in terms of all this stuff. What does that look like if you don't have some this sort of formal policy? And even though in the short term, it may seem like, you know, yes, I'm winning because I'm able to live, you know, where my family is in Nashville or wherever. Mm -hmm. I'm able to do these things and still have the career, I don't know that in five years the benefits will be there or yeah. if there won't be, you know, a, a second class of associate, a full remote associate. Maybe they don't get the promotions at the same rate that you would expect for in-person associates. Yeah. And I think that that's something you really have to think about before you commit to that career path. Yeah. No, that, that's very fair. Well, that brings us to the very end of our show here, I think. So you get the last word on that. We're... 
Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> thanks for listening to the show. You should be subscribed to the show. You should give it reviews, stars, write something, show engagement. You should be reading Above the Law, of course. Uh, you should be following us on social media. I'm at Joseph Treese. She's at Catherine One, the numeral one. Uh, you should be checking out the Jabot, her other show. I'm also on the panel of the Legal Tech Week legal journalist roundtable you should be listening to the other shows by the legal talk network thanks again as always to lexicon and nota powered by mt bank and i think i just ran through everything in almost record time peace